A warm welcome to the Creative Places and Faces podcast, the podcast that explores places that help to inspire creativity. Some are local, some even formative, and others are far away and sometimes rather exotic. I'm Mike Payne, one of the Creative Places and Faces team. Let me introduce you to your host, Jackie DeBurka. Jackie is originally from Dublin, Ireland, but has spent a lot of time abroad, especially in Spain. She is the author of Salvador Dali at Home, creator of Travel Inspires, and the number one travel and tourism influencer, Q2 2020, according to Global Data. Over to you, Jackie. But so listen, did you get a shock to the system then? You returned back over to Ireland to Derry, wasn't it, in the, in the sort of early to mid-90s? Was yeah. that a shock to the system? It was. It, I think what excited me about it to some extent was I was going through a difficult situation with, from a family point of view, but leaving that aside, I think what was exciting about it was the the history of Derry. I don't know if you know the history of Derry University. I mean, the, you know, John Hume, who sadly has passed away, you know, would have been mm-hmm. for a university in Derry in the 60s, late 60s. So what happened was McGee College, which I think historically had been a, a training college for teachers. I'm not sure, but I think it was way back. But um, it became a sub-branch of the Belfast College of Art. Okay. Or some of it, a certain section of it did. So I was coming back in a way to to establish, to help, not on my own course, but to help establish courses, which at that point in time were what they're called HNDs, which are like diploma type level courses. And I thought, well, here, here's a chance to do something. So a group of us got together and it was dynamic. We were able to kind of, but it took a while because there was a little bit of, how would you say, I thought there was some prejudice in in from the, the mothership, shall we say, in not allowing the thing to happen naturally in, in, in Derry. It was, it was still being suffocated a little bit. And I was pushing, along with another guy from Dublin, we were pushing very strongly to to get degree courses, which we did eventually get, and then to get the first master's in design and bachelor's of design in the north, never mind in the university. And so we got that going, and but it took years of hard slog. And um, we, we got a new school of, of creative and performing arts there. And at that point, we had a very dynamic professor who has uh, passed away, Robert Welsh. He was a quite an established Irish uh, poet and, or sorry, uh, uh, novelist, but also a kind of a he, he had, you know, produced and edited the Irish Oxford Guide of Literature and stuff. And uh, he was a professor of humanities, and he supported us in developing. And he relocated music to to Derry, and. Um, and also theatre. So so we had a lot of things happening there and then also establishing new development in, in dance. So it was really dynamic. But um, And at that time also, then I, I, I joined a writer's group in Derry. The Verbal Arts Centre was set up and uh, there was a writer's group set, set up there. And I got involved in a cross-border group then and I called it Shy Wolf because I was crazy about wolves. And I liked the notion of something wild and intangible that writing, when it really does speak to you, it, it it can lift the hackles on the back of your neck. So I, I like that notion of something uh, primal in, in, in writing. And so we established this group called Shy Wolf and it ran for a couple of years and it was a mixture of the visual and, and the literary. And it was funded by the Arts Council in the North. And then I got interested in, at that point, animation. And then I, I and that, then the animation, I suppose, got me interested in narrative. So I then went beyond the poetry and decided that probably I should look at at, at prose so I, I and because i lived on the border i like that notion of of and in some ways i think it's kind of almost defines me this notion of living here and living there kind of the sort of i'm a gemini i'm not sure if that's relevant or not but this sort of 
on the e- either side of the fence sort of thing. It, it seems to appear as a motif generally in a lot of my kind of thinking. But um, but yeah, so I, I that did inform a piece that I wrote and um, a year or so ago, the, the the group I was with in Australia and the journal, they wrote to me and they said, look, this is our 30th anniversary. Would you like to submit something? So I did mm-hmm. a piece called Borderlands, which was really all about that. Um, a story that was set on the border and uh, an, old, an old character who was who was uh, losing his mobility, but his, uh, his main family was living on the other side. And he had to make a choice. What does he want to do? But then I wrote another story, which which also explored that, and it was called Iceland, which which was about a little boy being bullied to school. And I can send you a link to that because that was also on published by or broadcast by RTE. But so the border, in, the living along the border. Is a uh, is something that that uh, there are complications, there are advantages. You know, the the joy of say living on the Donegal side is it's, it's to me it's a more relaxed, broader, multicultural experience. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the the benefits of living on the, on the dairy side would be that you have access to free health, but you have access to um, a bus station and an airport. So that you know it, it, there are pluses and minuses, and there's but I, it, in the main, I kind of like that notion of. Dividing my time between Darien and Donegal, um, yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. I can really understand that. I mean, in a very quick and simplistic way, I could say, for me, Spain has maybe a little bit of what Australia had for you. Yeah. You know, the space, the light, the expansiveness. You know, experiences with nature that I maybe wouldn't have had in Ireland. Yeah. Yet, when I, I when I am able to go back to Ireland, obviously enough rough for the moment. Um, what I find each time I go back there is a combination of the actual culture, which is completely ingrained in me, yeah. the sense of humor, and the earthiness. There's an earthiness there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that's it, it, I mean it's nice that in a way that Spain isn't too far from Ireland. That was the only drawback I think I had about Australia was that it's a huge distance. Like you, you were talking, thirty six hours flight, plan time, twenty four hours from London to, to Sydney. But then you had a flight to get to London and a flight from London to Wagga or from Sydney to Wagga. So that was. That was an ordeal, you know, but at the same time now it's become easier, I think. I used to, it used to be two stops. I think there's just now one stop, you know. But mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So going back to that sort of, if you like, a blurring of, of the places, the boundaries going over yeah. from one border to another, from one culture to another, do you feel that that sort of has affected your creative output? I think it does. I mean, I think if I were to say a, a I'm only going to be a writer. I probably would have a lot more stuff to show for my name, but because I kind of I'm always jumping around, I mean, and and uh, it's been a kind of a, a plus and a minus in my life. But I I do love both equally. So I did. It kind of combined probably the best combination was probably when I was um, when I was doing the AMA at Queens uh, in creative writing. There was a an artist there called Sylvia. Uh, Grace Border, who I think is now living in Canada, and she was very into picture text work, and I'd never heard of this before. Although I had been conscious of concrete poetry um, way back in the arts, arts days, but I hadn't looked at it in any depth. But she was exploring this idea, discussing it with us as a guest lecturer on occasions with Sinead Morris, who's also quite an established poet. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, this is interesting. So I then came across a book on trees, uh, an excellent book. Uh, he's, he's written quite a few books uh, on, on Irish natural history, and his name is Niall McCotter, and he had a book on Irish trees, myths and legends, and folklore. And I came across the history of of um, Ohm script, and he had made this reference that this this is had, had drawn its its kind of meaning from the origins of tree, you know, elements of trees. So I thought, oh, this, mm-hmm. and Ireland has very very few trees, and I when I lived in the street, it was full of trees. So I thought, and often when I when I walk through the landscape, I mean. 
a partner says, and I would see the landscape as beautiful in Ireland. I would see it as, as devoid of trees. I would be thinking, where are the trees? <laughs> like you look at Connemara, you look at Donegal, and you think, oh, yeah, wow. But it, to me, it's bald. It doesn't look, to me, the more trees there are, the more, you know, vibrancy of life there'll be. You know, the ecosystem will be healthier. I mean, if you read any books on the history of Ireland, you'll find that a squirrel could literally travel from Malinhead to Mizenhead without touching the ground at one point. And that is no longer the case. In fact, I would say Ireland's probably the least number of trees in, in Europe. So I was trying to, in a sense, sing, produce a body of work that sort of sang a lament about that. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I used this OM script and I decided to map it along the color spectrum. So each, each, each character had a color. And then I just spelled out the names of all the trees that historically would be Irish. And I discovered that um, in ancient Ireland, there were 13 months and not 12. And that um, so I created this kind of circular exhibition of of very minimalist um, iconographic and OM scripts of the names of trees spelled out in OM and then underneath in English and Irish. And anybody who came to the exhibition got a little tub with a tree, an oak, a growing oak inside the little cup to take home with them, you know. So, oh, lovely. Yeah, so I kind of was, um, to me, uh, trees are so important to me. The environment to me is my kind of religion almost, you know. So, um, yeah, for me, that that was a significant thing. So I kind of enjoyed that, and I was funded by that to this disability arts organization, and then I became a member of their board, and I sat on it for a number of years. Um, and I realized how often artists with disabilities struggle to be even taken seriously. So I was very strong in, in supporting that for quite a, for a few years. Um, okay, let, let me interject on that one, because you've mentioned uh, with disabilities – does that relate to the fact that you had obviously a significant health change in your life around that time? Yes, it, it did. Yeah. I mean, I, I um, had suffered from uh, inflammatory bowel syndrome symptoms for a long, long time. Um, but I just thought this was just stress, hyperactive type of personality, um, spending too many plates and all that. But, you know, at the same time, loving it you know that you know graphic design is a, has a lot of quick reward you do stuff very quickly it's not mm. an advertising that you know there is obviously a big a big client or a big budget there and graphic design is often a smaller budget and you're just rattling something out within a day or two or maybe a week so it's deadline driven but i love that so in some respects i think i, I don't know but yeah i, I developed this severe like uh, inability to eat food and drink water around christmas mm. time in 2000 and Five, I think it was, and uh, was I was taken into the hospital immediately and told I had a, a toxic megacolon, which meant I had to get my bowel removed, and it was large. And I and I was told if I didn't, I would die within the day. And I thought, what, what? So um, I decided, yeah, I'll go with that. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> yeah, I'll take that option. And so they initially they gave me an implant which I wore, and for a year and a bit it was fine, and I went back to work. But it, I have a high output system so it just it means you dehydrate it means you have to be careful uh, you have enough water in your system it also means you can sort of like uh, lose focus or concentration but i find it very challenging when i was teaching i went back to teaching for a year and a bit and i just i, I was getting worse and i had to have a second surgery to make it permanent and i just thought no at this point i'm gonna leave so at that point i i recalibrated and thought well okay what could i do this to make this a positive so i I decided then to do the MA and creative writing at Queens, and that's and took early retirement and, and got a very low pension. But um, because I hadn't, I'd worked in various places, but I'd never really focused in any length of time on on a proper pension investment. But as it turned out, in the end, um, because of the 
the the nature of my condition they did eventually give me the balance of the years that i would have had had i still worked the full time so i have a, a okay. respectable enough income shall we say okay from an yeah. pension, which the university, which, uh, you know, wonderful. I'm not sure you get those pensions anymore, but that has made it easy for me to kind of like get by. So, yeah, but so that, that made me conscious then of, it led me to slow down and then it led me to kind of, I think when you have surgery that in a sense is life-saving, you do weigh up what your life should be about, you know, you start thinking, well, what what is, what is important here? You know, what, what is trivia, you know? So that, that was kind of sobering and, but it was it was actually it wasn't a sad experience it was it was if anything it was liberating you know uh, and I, I I often forget that I have a disability you know but it it except on the Camino there'd be times when you're thinking oh my god can I can I do the next twenty five kilometers with, without a glass of water so you know it's, it's you're trying to juggle the amount of fluid you take in is this bit of fluid you lose it's, it's it can be tricky but um hmm. and there can be some embarrassing and hilariously funny. Uh, uh, sort of aspects to that experience, but uh, it it certainly turned my life around. You know, I don't really have any serious inflammatory conditions anymore. I just have to manage the device. That's all there is to it, and it's managed. Um, that's the, you know obviously a good result, and and also the fact that you know you were lucky enough uh, to actually be able to get an income that makes yeah makes your life quite manageable, which is great because if you have a health issue, you don't want the extra stress of no. of money problems. You know no, exactly. You know so. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about just before we we we're going to talk about the river and other stories. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the Camino and its importance to you and how it affects your creativity. Well, it's it's one of those things. I was uh, Susanna has a brother who had a little girl some years ago, and we went to this uh, christening ceremony, and I met someone there. He said to me, uh, "They were talking about the Jakobsweg. I hadn't a clue what they're talking about. What's the Jakobsweg? And it's the you know Jacob's away, and um, I don't know who Jacob was. And then they said Santiago de Compostela, and of course I didn't know what Santiago meant. I didn't know what Compostela meant. So I realized, oh, it means St James and the Field of Stars. And I looked it up, and I thought, oh right, so there there is this path you can do, blah blah blah. And uh, then I came across a book by a guy called John McBrearley, or is it John Brady? I'm not sure. It's McBrearley or Brearley, but um, he has a guidebook which is excellent on the, the place you can stop the different legs of the journey. He produces maps of the the elevations and the plan views of all the different paths and, you know, the num- telephone numbers of all the places you can stay, and it's updated regularly. And mm. so I headed off in 2013 for the first time just to see, could I do this? Now, of course, I was told by everybody, you will not be able to do it with your condition, blah, blah, blah. And I just wanted to know, well, okay, I know I can't. There, there is a problem when you, have, when you have abdominal surgery twice, which I did have. Your core mm. muscles are completely affected. Your balance can be a bit weird. And... um I remember the first time I had, had, well, years after the second surgery, I thought I'll just go to the gym and I'll try and tone up the abs, <laughs> which was the worst thing I could have done because it, you can you can really seriously affect your, you can give yourself a hernia and stuff. So I didn't realize this and I, I was trying to sort of build abs and it turned out it was a disaster. And the guy said to me, you should not be doing this. And I, I oh, right. So I then thought, okay, what what can I do that can keep me fit? And I thought walking was the thing. So the Jacob's egg, it's not Diego Compostela, seemed a logical thing, the Camino. So I went and did it and I did it for about as far as Burgos, which I think was about maybe a third of the way. And I, mm-hmm. and I was with, I met two Irish guys, one guy in the 70s, one guy in the 60s who'd, who'd also just retired. And we had broken on like house on fire. And, but I was getting wounds. I get I sometimes get wounds uh, as a result of too much stress. I'll get wounds around my body. And I, I got this 
wound around where I had to put the plan, so I really couldn't continue. I had to go home. But I got emails from guys saying, "Listen, guys, we're, we're, we really miss you. You know, come back, come back." So actually, after a week or so of recovery, I came back and finished the last leg. And then on the last day, I bumped into a guy, strangely enough, from Derek, who said, "Do the Portuguese one. It's less onerous." So uh-huh. and I have done the Portuguese one. I I don't go to Lisbon. I go to Porto. So I do about a three hundred k walk. Um, mm-hmm. And the beauty of it is, it's half in half in Portugal and half in Spain. And so I love that mix. And it I, you can do it in ten days. I do it in twelve days. And so you're doing twenty five kilometers a day. So you're you're walking between four hours and six hours a day, depending on the terrain. And mm-hmm. um, Generally speaking, I've had one year where it rained every day, which was miserable, but but it was good when it stopped, as they say. But um, but I generally what I do is I then would take the bus down to Porto or Lisbon and spend three three days just chilling out. Um, Susanna doesn't do it at, at this point because she she uh, I generally do it end of May, beginning of June, which to me that's like preparation for the summer. It seems to dovetail with, you know, the summer is stretching ahead of you. You've done a wee bit of a challenge you're all set you maybe lost a few kilos and uh you're feeling energized you've had your vitamin d injection from the sun and it's mm-hmm. wonderful and you're charged you know so and that unfortunately for her is the time when she would sometimes uh, do some uh, exam work for some of the, for the exam boards you know assessing film work and that kind of thing so okay. yeah. so um so i generally do it my own but in some respects it's even better because in a way you you're forced to meet people if you go as a couple or a group of people, you, you know, you tend to stay in a, a sort of a bubble. Whereas um, if you're on your own, you have no choice but to reach out. So I, I've met people from all over the world. And I've got my friends now from, you know, every corner of the earth, really. And I just love it. And so I use Facebook to keep in touch or, you know, Twitter or whatever it is. But you do keep in touch. You do. You still still have friends you can go back to after years and have a, a beer or a coffee with that you haven't seen in two or three years. And they'll sit and talk to you. And um it is wonderful and as cheap as chips, as they say. You know, you might p- spend five euros or six euros for a dormitory, or if you wish and you want to stay in a, a, a pension, you'll spend 20. But you, right. you might spend no more than 20 euros a day on food and a, a glass of beer or a glass of wine or whatever it is. So it, it, over 10 or 12 days, it's not expensive, and it's it's mm-hmm. a wonderful experience, you know. Okay. Okay. So something that hopefully let, let's see what the year has for all of us this year. Obviously we're the early stages and all hopeful that at least maybe by the summertime things might have calmed down, you know, um, just to go, to go to the river and other stories in 2011, Sean, that was long listed for the Frank O'Connor award. Yeah. The stories, they explore the notion of a river of people flowing through a particular place over various decades. Yeah. In this particular, case it's the river foil yeah i'm i find the whole concept of water and creativity absolutely fascinating what 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 are your own thoughts well there would be it's also what attracts me to that is this sort of notion of um there was a i think there's a little quote i put at the start of the book actually from donald mccann Uh McCann was a a colin mccann yeah colin mccann and and the quote i had the book was look see the way the water is still moving underneath It'll keep on moving, only inches below. The owning is gone, even ours. So this it's a, this notion that you own anything, I think that was the the, the idea that we're, everything is transitory. And I, I think the more times I do the community, the more zen like I become or something. But um, it's just that notion of of 
place, but pla- the idea that a river is in the same place, but it isn't the same water going through it, you know, and it's just that notion that, you know, when you, when people are born, they die and other people come, their children follow them, their grandchildren, and just that notion and the stories that they carry with them. Um, I mean, it's it's just it's all this mixture of how we have char- maybe have traits or characteristics that maybe our grandfather had or our grandmother had, and we don't know how we, we picked that up, but we do have it in our DNA. So it's this idea that, you know, there's a space that and also in the book, what I did was I wanted to, I did explore stories from the, say the forties to, to the present. One of the stories was a, was an old lady who was, was in a, an old people's home and she had remained single all her life. Um, but she was, she was reflecting back and working in a shirt factory and how she had at the time they used to put little, little, uh, romantic notes into the, into the pocket of the shirts particularly during the Second World War when they made church for the army, the British army or something. And they'd put a wee note saying, you know, please contact me if you find this note sort of thing. And uh, th- this woman had talked about this and she's she on a radio program and being interviewed. But it turns out that someone had actually intended to, f- to follow up on this note but had been injured and gone to Canada, but in fact um, does contact her and it's called the day room. So that was the first story. It was just exploring this notion of time and how things can sometimes come later in your life when you when you least expect them but also i wanted to kind of explore the history of the troubles and how Derry is is also a kind of divided city in a sense that now as it is the, the river foil divides the, the city um not entirely but you could generally say it's a, it's a generalization of course that by and large the city side of this of the city is broadly speaking nationalist or something and you could say that the that the other side of the water side as they call it is broadly speaking, or maybe, you know, that's where the, the people who would see themselves as unionists would live. That's a very simplistic description, but that, so I thought I wanted to explore a story that that would would explore the trauma of the trouble. So there's a story about about an incident on the river where someone is killed and, and dies. And, this, and it's in, I also want to place the story in the center of the book so that this notion of, of the geography of the stories is also kind of a, a construct in the book so the river itself which is the, one of the main stories is right bang in the middle so there's a series of stories before it and a series of stories after it and i wanted to also ex- explore the notion of different art forms like um music and and writing and and painting and, and dance these are all kind of little elements that are explored in different stories in the book um so for me this was a this, the collection came out of the ma it was, a, it was your your ma dissertation thankfully wasn't anything heavy it was just do a body of creative work and i wanted to create a series of stories there was also another story which i was intrigued by which was the there had been a railway disaster um in a certain stretch of donegal where the the train had blown off the track um from these huge viaducts and i had kind of one of the one of the challenges we've been asked to do as students on the MA was to pick a real incident and create a story around it. So that's what I had done, mm-hmm. and that kind of sparked this notion of of a collection of stories along the river foil. So, um, so yeah, they, so that, as a result of that, I had a body of work. I went to the Guildhall Press, and they said to me, "Need some serious editing here." And uh, but <laughs> thankfully, I got a good editor, and uh, Marlon McLaughlin, who's also a writer, and uh, mm-hmm. she wrote a book. I think probably 20 years ago called uh, a dream woke me, which was published by black Star press, a collection of stories. And she's a superb writer. And I think she's focusing on poetry, but um, she edited it and she helped me quite a bit. And, um, and the nice thing was that they, the Guildhall press allowed me to design the cover. So in a sense I had, to, I had kind of a, 
directorial control of you, like over the the aesthetics of the book, which I kind of like. Yeah. So that was a lovely feeling, you know. So, but yeah, it was it was a huge boost. Even though I think I'm not sure, maybe I'm wrong. I, I doubt that everybody who submits that competition gets long listed, but maybe they do. I don't know. So I, I tell myself, no, that can't be true. But you never know. So, but it was still nice. It was still nice to to uh, be long listed. And that did help me get a grant for the for the novel that I wrote, but um, and that did help me. But believe it or not, I, just after that, I, I I actually got an agent. I briefly had an agent, um, in London who was Emma Donahue's agent, um, mm-hmm. and I thought, whoa, you know, buy the yacht next year, kind of thing. And uh, but it it, it 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 petered out, and so it, for six six or seven years now, I've been struggling to get an agent. But I think it's it's a mixture of there are so many voices out there, and there are so many unrepresented if you want to call it um, aspects of society or groups within society. And that's where the focus is going, perhaps rightly, you know, in terms of, um, you know, the history of, of, of authors and writers being published have largely been male, white and in their sixties. So in some respects I fall into the wrong category, but, you know, I still live in hope, you know, um, but I still write and I still, you know, put stuff out there, but that was, you know, immediately after the MA and everything was going, gloriously at that point i thought it's only a matter of time now until i'll be snapped up but uh but so um yeah so that you know that that was a a, a nice a nice moment in in uh in my writing to, to have had that collection you know yeah and also what uh the 2019 i know it's flat it was a flash flash let's try that again flash fi- fiction prize yeah uh but that was judged. I saw that that was judged by Nulo O'Connor. So I think the fact that you won that with her being a judge, that was a big compliment, I believe. Oh, it was. I mean, uh, yeah, I have huge respect for Nulo. I mean, Nulo is prolific. I, 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 I would be in awe of her because I have a particular interest in, in historical fiction. Most of my work, the larger body of work that I've written, would be looking at historical issues and trying to explore them from, you know, what I would call um, blind spots and, and trying to, in some way, look at those through literature, and uh, Nula has huge body of work now, and, and, and every other year she's producing another novel, and she and mm, also yeah. is is, a, is an expert at, at at making connections to put it out there, and and that's a whole expertise in itself, and she's got that she's a black belt in that, from what I can see, you know, um, so, <laughs> you know, so yeah, a huge admiration. I mean, I'm 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 in awe of all the books that are coming out. There's so many writers in Ireland, particularly particularly dynamic now. Um, mm. It's it's definitely a golden uh, period. Um, although it's a strange time too, because you wonder to what extent are people reading. You know, I hope they are, but you do wonder, you know, with the with the digital. Um, revolution to what extent people are, are sound biting when it comes to reading are they reading i mean clearly they are when it comes to new people are reading our books but you do wonder down the line is that are, are people looking at you know the flash fiction thing you wonder what is that an aspect of the trend the way things are going you know where people are looking for sound bites rather than big big witty tones you know but then you have you know like uh uh you know the wolf hall and all that kind of stuff which is massive you know these huge chunky books as big as doorsteps you know being read so there's hope, hopefully, there. Um, I think I think we're probably going through. I mean, some some people may may disagree or agree with this, but I think we're probably going through kind of a bit of a rebirth yeah. in terms of people's lifestyles because they have no choice but to to reinvent how they're going to live their lives right now. You know, yeah, that, exactly. I, I believe, Sean, for many people, that will include reading proper books. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that they may have done previously. You know. 
Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's so much. I mean, we we like I grew up with my mother watching a lot of movies. I used to sit and watch movies with my mother, and I kind of missed a lot of the old black and whites I used to watch. But it's funny when I when you go to Netflix and these things, and you try to find book films of those kind of quality. You don't get them. There's a lot of these kind of like you know pretty light, lightweight scripts and stuff. And whereas, or you maybe look at a film and then you go to the book and you find the book is much more rich than the, than the film. Of course, you know. Oh, often the case. Often the case. Listen, going to one or two of the other places that are have been important in your life, Sean. One of them happens to be where we mentioned Neil O'Connor, obviously where Neil is based these days. That's Galway, um, a place that's really special to me as well. Why, why is it important to you, Sean, as as a place? Well, I think it was actually um, a student of mine came over from Australia to visit me way back when I first came back, and he's now living, still lives here. But he had, you know, headed off with the camera and started turning around Ireland. And he actually went to Galway, and he said to me, Sean, this is an amazing place. Now, I, I had been there in the 80s, and I had no recollection of the dynamic, the dynamic kind of cultural thing that, that was there then, being there at that time, even he rang me. So I went down and had a look, and I couldn't believe it. I was, I think I was there during the week of the Arts Festival. And Magnus was you know, pretty big and dynamic at that point. And they were doing all these kind of street performances. And there were people with puppets in the street, people flamethrowing in the street. Uh, there was lots of, you know, people gigging in the street. Nearly every pub you went to had different a different musical uh, genre. You'd have pop music, rap music, blues music, traditional music. It was amazing. I just loved it. And there was lots of Spanish and Italian and, you know, all sorts of people floating around. And I thought, my God, this feels like Australia to some extent. So I, me... That's that's I love that for that reason. Also, the intimacy of the place, you know, you know, you can walk from A to B fairly quickly, no matter where you're in the city, you know. So it's that intimacy and it's it's the fact that you can stand in a pub and talk to a stranger. Um, I just love it. And, the, you know, that you'll hear you'll hear Irish language, you'll hear Sean no singing and dancing and stuff. And it's just and it's dynamic. It's it's really it's part of the air, air that you breathe in the place. And, and like it was a little woman I went to see. It must have been close to 20 years ago um and it was father griffith road i stay in and she i think she still rents out a room but she she doesn't charge me any more than she charged me 20 years ago like she may charge me 15 or 20 euros a night you know it's buttons like and uh you know it's very very basic bracket i don't really eat much breakfast but i would occasionally go down well i have been going up for 25 years to the courage festival international festival of literature and i went there 25 years ago for the first time couldn't believe how exciting it was. In fact, I think it was even more dynamic then than maybe it is now. And it, mm-hmm. there was lots of poetry and lots of prose and lots of nonfiction. I remember hearing John Pilger, the Aussie journalist, reading from some of his stuff there. Um, it was so dynamic. And I, I started to kind of attend uh, workshops and then I started to write, you know, bring some poetry along. Went to a workshop with Max Hafler, who was a theatre performer telling people how to read their poetry or encouraging them how to read it better. And I was there mm-hmm. with Susanna, actually, but I met Susanna in, in, in the, uh, the, the theatre there in Nuns Island. And it was a little workshop, and we were both reading and her stuff. And then we went and had, had a beer afterwards. And I'm not sure, was it, it was a hotel just across the street? I can't remember the name of it now. But um, myself and Susanna and another guy called Jerry Henbury, and he and he was also a poet. In fact, he's a guy I would, I would recommend if you want to chase up somebody who's and who writes books. He's written a number of books on the Irish ballad, and he's written a book on Oscar Wilde. He's written a number of books of poetry, and he's a brilliant musician. He lives mm-hmm. in Galway. He lives in Galway. He would be a fantastic uh, a person for your podcast. Um, okay. Wonderful. Okay, that's interesting. But, but that's yeah, interesting. But, yeah, it was a wonderful. I, I just love the – I just love it. I just love the – when I go there, I feel always feel refreshed. I feel It's just energized, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I have pretty much the same. I adore Galway and really can't wait to get back over there at some stage. Um, the final place that we're going to mention, you mentioned Susanna, mm-hmm. uh, who is number number 11, episode number 11 on this first season. Yep. So, um, of course, she hails from Germany and that also plays a bit of a special role in your life, Sean. Do you want to talk a bit about Germany? Yeah, I mean, I... Um... We, we met in 1998, so I had never really been to Germany before that and um, went over to see her a number of times. And, of course, she's not my partner, but I didn't know anything really much about the history of Germany. And when I went, I do remember it distinctly sitting in her mother's living room and her mother gave me a book of photographs of Nuremberg post the Second World War. And it was literally in ruins. Um but if you walk around that city now, you would honestly think that what you're walking amongst all those little streets with the beautiful kind of frescoes on the walls and the high-pitched roofs and the the architecture and the cobbles, you would think it was the original city, but they rebuilt it, you know, as it was. And they must have had plans, but they built it exactly as it was. So it, it does feel like it's not a pastiche, like it feels like a genuine, authentic uh, city centre that you would have seen probably pre-war. Um, but I love all that. I love that. I mean, I'm fond of a German beer, of course, and some of their sausages are quite nice. But I just love that, out, that outdoor kind of you know, the beer cart, but not not swinging back loads and loads of But just, you know, one or two and sitting with people. And, you know, they have these cultural things where you have the blue night where they go out and people sit in parks and classical music is played with huge concerts and everybody sits with their deck chairs and have sandwiches. And it's such a lovely uh, place, you know. It's, it, and I taught briefly in Augsburg. I found the people... Really interesting. I remember one guy who was teaching 3D software, and I thought, you know, there's you tend to think, oh, he's one of these uh, IT geeks, you know. And uh, he was a lecturer there, and I was visiting professor, whatever it was, in typography. And we were sitting chatting, and he said, do you want to see my uh, my studio? And I said, okay. So I went in to see the studio, and he had been carving some of these old uh, statues from the cathedrals that were, you know, falling apart and needed repaired. He was literally capable of recarving a version of what the original looked like um even though he was an it guy so they had they had these incredible craft skills that you know i don't think you would see them too much in ireland these days but i just couldn't believe the 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 sort of the density of the craftsmanship you know but i I love love that sort of I, i remember the first uh Christmas market I went to, I thought it was in a fairy tale, you know, it was just snow was falling and, and we were drinking blue vine and we we're standing around, but there was, they had this thing called the Christ child come, appears, this young lady comes out dressed up as an angel standing on a balcony and she's singing and it was really, it was like somewhere out of a film. It's just stunning. Um, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Now, going back to your own area, Sean, um, if you were, obviously once lockdown has ended and it's, it's safe to travel, if you were receiving somebody from Germany or, yeah. you know, a friend somewhere abroad, where would you actually recommend for them to stay? Where would be a favorite place in that area that you're? Well, well I would say, first of all, um, it would, there would be a certain number of places and obviously in Derry that um, you could say, and also Donegal. I mean, the typical ones in Derry would probably be um, – Patter's Pub. There's also another pub in Derry. It's called Sandino's, which is kind of like a lefty kind of pub where you have lots of images of Che Guevara and stuff on the wall and all that kind of. But for a lot of writers, <laughs> a lot of writers and musicians and theatre, okay, hang out there, you know. And it's in a funny little spot. It's right behind the railway station. It's quite a narrow little pub, but it would be a good spot. Um, 
Patters would be very good for the traditional music. I mean, I would often go in there. They'd go in there with a writer who's now passed on. But and there'd be lots of people coming in from Germany and France. Clearly, it must be on the list of places they're supposed to go to. And you would get guys playing in there, beautiful traditional music, but also guys with electric fiddles, like these things that look like skeletons of, of little bits. Maybe it's a fretboard and a little bit of metal, but they play beautiful, stunning stuff. And they sing ballads, of course, as well. But in Donegal, I mean, even West Donegal, like the places I would have gone to uh, in the 70s would still have a fair bit of musical sort of activity, like Hootie Bugs Pub in Bunbeg would be really worth going to. Um, and also Leo's Tavern. I mean, Leo's Tavern, I would have gone to way back in the 70s, but Leo's Tavern would still, I mean, Leo's Tavern would have been, he's the, he would have been the father of Enya and, and uh, you know, the planted people. So he would have been playing a squeeze box, but he's passed on, but he would still get good musical sessions in there. And that would be... And would that place, that would be like, again, I'm talking about different days when tourism is... You know, possible again. That wouldn't be overrun with tourists because of not, because of the girls. Not not particularly because it's it's, it's a little bit remote. I mean, West Donegal is kind of like a, it's you've a bit of a spin to get there, you know. And uh, but it's it's got a nice um, crawley is, is where Leo's Tavern would be. So it's a wee bit off the beaten track, and the and you know it wouldn't necessarily be on everybody's kind of list of places to go, but it would be worth worth definitely worth going to, you know. Um, okay. Uh, I don't know any showing um, north, any showing all that well, um, but there is a is it is it um, called Daft? There's a pub up there which is which kind of which is quite dynamic. I can't remember the top of my head the name of it is at the moment, but Daft would be a good spot for traditional music as well, and also kind of readings of poetry. And I think the McGill Summer School is is up around there, as far as I remember. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's. What's what's nice about Only Showon is as a, a I didn't realise until quite recently, Donegal I didn't realise um includes Any Showon and Cheer Connell. But I remember when I was a kid they always called Donegal Cheer Connell in Irish, but Cheer Connell only refers to the bit west of Any Showon. And Donegal includes I said, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Donegal includes Any Showon and Cheer Connell. But Any Showon is is as a place, is is it's it's a lovely kind of there's so many beaches in it, but it's not a very big area. It's only 100, 100 miles around the whole sort of coastline. So it's mm-hmm. quite intimate. And there's lots of little nooks and crannies that would be well worth visiting with, you know, intimate little pubs and restaurants, you know. Okay. It sounds it sounds like a gorgeous area to go to, you know, when, when we get a bit of decent Irish weather. <laughs> yeah. It's, what it is, is, is that I think it's, you've got Loch Foyle on one side and you've got Locks Willie on the other and what I didn't realize I remember reading a story by Kevin Barry called the Fjord of Killary or something and I think I didn't realize that there are two fjords in Ireland one of them is is Killary and the other one is uh Swilly is a, is a fjord which means it's a very deep loch it's not your typical shallow edit loch and you would occasionally get um orcas in the north opening of of uh you know the mouth of it um, near Malin Head, swinging, swimming in around Swilly, you'll get you will get orcas and, and and that you know killer whales kind of floating around there. So I would mm. say don't wear a, a wetsuit when you're in <laughs> 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 you, know, you know, but yeah, you can, also, you can also see the Northern Lights, can't you? From from around Malin Head, you can. I mean, I, I've seen photographs of some people who've taken some stunning shots, and I thought, my goodness, is that really true? But it must be. I've never uh, witnessed it, but I'm sure. I mean, I have seen certainly seen some stunning 
evening light in recent and back in recent weeks and months there's been absolutely beautiful light in winter light um but i haven't so far seen that you know but i have seen them on photographs so i think it's true yeah okay okay so you're going to send us some links you mentioned you know during our chat today you have some really good links to send through to us but what are you currently working on sean are you working on any particular project yeah i've, I've always had this hankering as i said before about this visual and the textual and i, th- I thought i've always fantasized about doing a children's picture book and um i recently started reviewing for the children's uh, book ireland um the picture book section and I've, I have a fairly good selection of children's picture books from all over the world some of them absolutely stunning and so i'm kind of working on a on a piece for that at the minute which would be illustrated and written by myself but i'm also working on a third novel which is inspired by um the early days of, of settlement in uh, new south or sorry in, in melbourne and the wurundjeri tribe I, i've read a few books on the history of photography in australia and the, the archives of early indigenous photographs are now owned by the Wurundjeri community, the Wurundjeri tribe. And I've read a mm-hmm. few books. They, they now take custody of those and own them and, and celebrate them, even though you would see them as a colonial uh, eye, a colonial vision of, of Aboriginality. Uh, they, they have claimed ownership of that. So I'm trying to look at a novel that explores that in a way that reveals their culture rather than, than sort of... Um, it take, that takes it seriously and, and honors it in some way. So I'm, I'm trying to explore that, but that's a delicate topic. And I'm, I'm, I've been writing to and been in touch with the Wurundjeri community to try and get their um, blessing, if you want to call it, or, or their guidance on how to approach that in a way that is culturally sensitive and okay. appropriate. So I'm working on that at the minute. So um, and that's that's quite a dense kind of piece, but uh, a fair bit of it done. Um, so that's that's what I'm doing at the minute. Okay, so that's they're two very different type of projects. A children's book, obviously, with the illustrations yeah. and this this obviously huge responsibility that you're taking on yourself to write write the the book that you've mentioned. You know, yeah. I mean, the children's picture book has always been something I've fantasized about. Um, Ten years ago or so, um, my cousin had a daughter who passed away of spina bifida, complications of spina bifida. But prior to her death, she wrote a story or narrated a story to uh, her hospice nurse. And my cousin, shortly after she passed on, my cousin said to me, would you mind illustrating this? So I did illustrate it and I managed to get a printer and a publisher who did it for free. And, you know, we put it out there. So the money was used to kind of invest in the research into spina bifida. And that kind of gave me the notion of thinking, well, maybe I could, I could look at this so that, that was something that came out of that, and I'm quite um, excited about the fact that that you know could maybe come to fruition that I could do my own picture piece. But I did enjoy doing that, and I wanted to try and do justice to her story, and it was mm-hmm. a sweet little story. So I'm interested in trying to explore issues to do with the environment for children. But these would be picture books, but you know that encourage children to look at the environment and celebrate it. So that would be the themes I'd be looking at, probably. I would say in the okay. That sounds that sounds wonderful. So, do you have any sort of uh, hopeful dates of, of of publication at this stage, or is it too early to say? It's probably a bit early to say. I mean, it's it, it's tricky to find. I would say, like again, I'm not sure how easy it would be to find a publisher for it. But if it if it doesn't happen, I'll self publish it. You know, but um, but I I was going to the the Offset Festival in, in Dublin every year for a number of years, which is a fantastic festival of of uh, visual culture 
uh, photographers and illustrators and, and typographers and playwrights and filmmakers all come to the show to work. And every hour, there's a different speaker for three days in the uh, Board Gosh Theatre. It was an amazing experience. And I've been going, it didn't go last year because it was called off because of the COVID. Mm-hmm. But it was, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, so I'll be going there probably, you know, to kind of bounce off a few illustrators that I know down there as well. Um, okay. Yeah, so... Okay. Well, listen, the best of luck, Sean. Obviously, the two projects sound, both of them, very, very exciting. The best of luck with the two of those. Um, thank you so much for taking your time to be with us here on Creative Place, Places and Faces today. And uh, just for, so for you to look out for as well yourself, because like myself, I know you have a lot of respect for Nulo. Connor will be coming on with us um, early early this year as well. Fantastic. So. <laughs> so I thought I'd just mention that to you. And uh, listen, I I really enjoyed our chat today, Sean. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jackie. I enjoyed it very much myself. Thanks very much for having me. Okay. You take care, Sean. Thank okay. you. All the best. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Creative Places and Faces podcast. If you would like to apply to be a guest or a sponsor, be sure to check out the links below the podcast. Until next time, from all of us here, take care, stay safe, and be creative. <laughs>